out of the Reformation came what we've been studying, as one has called it, the gospel of the five onlys. And we've considered the scripture only, we've looked at Christ only, and now tonight we want to consider grace only, grace alone, sola gratia. I want to read to you Titus 3 and verses 5 through 7. Great place to do some memory work. Great place. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The 1996 uh, Cambridge Declaration, which was put out by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, introduces grace alone in this fashion, and you have it, but I want to read it. Some people listen to this online so they can hear it. Let's follow through. Unwarranted confidence in human ability is a product of fallen human nature. This false confidence now fills the evangelical world, from the self-esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel, from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold, and sinners into consumers who want to buy, to others who treat Christian faith as being true simply because it works. The silence, this silences the doctrine of justification regardless of the official commitments of our churches. God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but is the sole efficient cause of salvation. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead and are incapable even of cooperating with regenerating grace. We affirm that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. Let's walk along four lines of truth statements in order to get this in sharp focus. First of all, grace alone is, and we're going to use this first statement to make sure we get clarity in our own minds as to what Grace is. We use the word. It's one of our Christian words that uh, maybe we don't fully understand. So let's listen. Grace alone is the unmerited favor bestowed by God apart from man's ability or merit. It's unearned and it's unearnable. Now, such grace is necessary. Why? Because of the human condition. I've referenced here Romans 3 and 9 through 20 and verse 23. Verse 23 is where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here I've included a quote uh, 
Charles, Dr. Charles Ryrie has a succinct way of summarizing it. Christianity is distinct from all other religions because it is the message of grace. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God's grace. Salvation is by grace, and grace governs and empowers Christian living. Without grace, Christianity is nothing. Salvation is the sovereign work of God. It's not something we can generate. Here's a quote from, uh, this is from Sinclair Ferguson, who writes the chapter in the legacy of Luther. And he writes the chapter on the uh, sola gratia, and here's what he says. Luther was profoundly conscious that by nature we are totally depraved and thereby, therefore, totally disabled spiritually. Neither biblical commands nor our moral obligations to live for God's glory should be misread as assuming or implying our ability to fulfill them. <laughs> you can have desires before you put your trust in Christ even. They say, oh yes, yes, this is what I want. You don't bring that to God so that God says, whoa, I'm glad to hear that. Now we can make a deal. <laughs> no, no. Homo incurvatus. In say, is incapable of converting himself to God, man, because he has turned in on himself, is incapable of converting himself to God. Now let's give one other statement here, making sure we're getting grace in focus. Grace is undeserved. It's a favor. It's an act of kindness. It's from God. It's God's work on man's behalf apart from any deed good intention, or action of man. It's God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. It is not a work of man. Grace costs Jesus Christ his life. Grace is not cheap. It costs Christ. Now, to just turn the screw a little tighter, I want to reference Titus 2. And verses 11 through 14, I want to brush by something has to, with regard to grace, and we're going to come back to it later with more detail. And that is, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny godliness and worldliness and sinful desires. Grace instructs us. Grace instructs us. That's the way it's spoken of in Titus 2. How can it do this? Because... Here again, I quote from Rari, he says, Jesus Christ is the grace of God personified. Human works, human works, ah, oh, they're like termites. <laughs> and in God's structure of grace, they're like, they're destructive. We all, anybody that's ever been through the selling a home, you know, the termite inspection, everything can turn on that one. You've got to have it. And so, to remind us here that what works can do to the grace of God. But one of the reasons I've mentioned this grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires righteously is because grace changes one's life. 
It's that by which we live. It instructs me. That word instruct in, in Titus 2.11 is the word paiduo. We're familiar with, I think there's a school in the greater Atlanta, Paideia. And this is the word. It instructs. It teaches. Grace changes our lives. It did mine. Yours. I believe so. And I trust so. And it makes us zealous for good deeds, as he goes on to say in that passage. So do we have that? Grace, it's, it's not a complicated concept theologically. But I will tell you, it's been made complicated. So let's go to the second statement and drill it down on it. Grace alone was and is eclipsed by the teaching and practice of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's the system of sacramentalism in the Roman Church. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ which effectively communicates the great it signifies. Now, that's the Catholic concept of it. I'm not telling you that that's bona fide. <laughs> Listen to this. This is from a little book um, I have on loan from a friend of mine, James McCarthy. Some of you are familiar with it, The Gospel According to Rome. Very helpful book, by the way. Gives you the, uh, it synthesizes, it pulls together quotes from Roman Catholic catechism and other places, lines up scripture in comparison to it. Very helpful. This is a quote. The church teaches that these seven sacraments are the primary means by which God bestows sanctifying and actual grace upon the faithful. The sacraments are said to contain grace. The instrumental cause of grace. Watch it. It really gets tricky now. All right, I'm going to quote here from, this is the Council of Trent, Canon 11. You know the Council of Trent, this is the Council of 1546 to 1563, that where the Roman Catholic Church, and I need to put a sidebar in here, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, when the, the Reformers, obviously they created a, a Reformation in terms of retrieving, rescuing the gospel, the Roman Catholic Church did own up to the fact that there was serious corruption and there were problems in the church. I mean, the Renaissance popes were a disaster and other things as well. So as the, after the Reformation began to unfold, they had their own quote-unquote Reformation, not a return to the biblical gospel, but to some trying to clean up the way in which they presented themselves and to deal with the corruption. All right, with that said, listen to the Council of Trent, Canon 11 now, having to do with grace and the sacramental, sacramental system. If anyone says that men are justified either solely by the imputation of Christ's righteousness for solely by the remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit and stays with them, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the goodwill of God, let him be anathema. Now they get that, let him be anathema. They get that from Galatians chapter 1, you know, where Paul says that, preaching another gospel, let him be anathema. Well, there 
They're taking it, and you see what is said. And the Council of Trent has not been changed, not been rescinded, has not been modified. Canon 24. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let him be anathema. I'm coming to a a quote here from H.M. Carson. It's a book called Roman Catholicism Today. This is one of the better little books, a little paperback. I've had it for decades, which uh, goes into an assessment of Roman Catholicism, its, its, its various doctrines and so forth. It says this, Grace is conveyed not because of the faith of the recipient, but by virtue of the sacrament act, sacramental act itself. Ex opere operato, the work in the working. It actually does something in doing, the doing of it, just the doing of it. You get the grace. Well, that's the next point I raise here, is that then, in the system of sacramentalism, that grace then is infused into the recipient. The word infused. For those you Latin students, in plus fundere, meaning literally to pour into something. You might use this word to say like tea leaves are infused in hot water to make tea. That's the idea. So therefore, here's the concept. That God does save by grace. But that grace is given to those who are prepared for it. Are you hearing this? This is the, this is the, trick of it, the trickiness of it. It's subtle. Yes, you're, people who can talk with, uh, maybe talk with a Roman Catholic friend, say, yeah, we believe you're saved by grace. We believe you're saved by faith. So you're hearing all these words. Ah, but it tests your ability to understand what the word really means. God saved is the Catholic belief that saves by grace, but that grace is given to those who are prepared for it, for it, who do, quote, what is in them. So it's poured into the individual when he receives the sacraments. I've introduced you to Red Bull, haven't I? Okay, I want to make sure. I'm not advertising it for you. Don't. This is not a subliminal advertisement to drink this stuff. But it's, it's like a Red Bull effect, the sacrament. You go to the Mass, or it's in baptism, and when you take it in, it is giving to you. That's an infusion of grace. But you've got to be prepared to receive it. So you see the co- So there's a cooperation that's going on here. Now, I have another quote here. It's a rather extensive quote. It's right out of the, the Council of Trent on Justification. It's the First Decree, Chapter 9. It's a long one. I'm not going to read the entire uh, 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 statement, but I want to go down toward the, the bottom of it. And, um, okay, you just pick up, just pick up. I'm going to a part where I have an underline where it says this. It's about three-quarters of the way down in the statement. For even as no pious person ought to doubt of the mercy of God and of the mer- merit of Christ and of the virtue and efficacy of the sacraments. Even so, each one, when he regards himself in his own weakness and indisposition, may have fear and apprehension 
touching his own grace, seeing that no one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. So what you're left with is that you can have assurance, you can have certainty, and it's this constant need, therefore, for this Red Bull effect, namely a continual accessing the various uh, sacraments and obtaining merit, getting merit over time. Now, I have also here just a little brief statement of, with regard to justification as a process. I'm just trying to just make it as clear as I can. I've taken this. This is Sinclair Ferguson, again, his chapter in The Legacy of Luther. And here's his quote. One must cooperate with God's grace, describing the Roman Catholic system. One must cooperate with God's grace in developing a personal righteousness consummated if and when faith was fully formed by perfect love for God. It was widely held that it was almost always if and not when. <laughs> if and not when. Do you get it? The process. You can never be sure. You've got to keep going through. See, what you're doing, you're conflating justification with sanctification. And I, we, you don't understand what sanctification is. The process of growing and maturing. But in the Roman Catholic system, they are synonymous, and it's a process. Oh, we must always be dogged in making it very clear there's a distinction between that miraculous moment in which you're born again and God declaring you righteous by faith alone in Christ and not confuse that with the issues of sanctification that is making, creating the notion that they're conditions. Now, I have a note here uh, with regard, in your, uh, in your notes, with regard to Luther, the monk. The question, what did Luther preach? All this being said about what grace is according to the Catholic Church well, here's what Luther preached. Now, this is Luther the monk. This is pre-conversion Luther. <laughs> Listen to what Luther said. He said, he acknowledged, this is what he preached. This is, he, so, Luther could state that salvation is not, this is a quote, is not on the basis of our own merits, but on the pure promise of a merciful God. You say, hey, it sounds good. <laughs> Why did he need to be born again if he's preaching this way? He's got it. Oh, does he? Let's go further. Luther taught his students that salvation was by grace. This is from Luther here. Not because of our merits. Salvation is given out of the pure mercy of the promising God. Was Luther declared a heretic for preaching this when he did as a monk? This was before he nailed anything on any door. No, he was upholding Rome's own theology. I mean, your head may be swimming a little bit. Wow, this really takes some understanding. Because hearing the words, hearing the concepts, but a million theological uh, light years away. All right, let's get back on onto this core issue here. Number three. Grace alone provides forgiveness of sin and assurance of one's salvation. I note here that I speak of the muddy waters of Rome's theology. So I'm not through with that. Because I'm going to contrast it with Luther's discovery here. The muddy waters of Rome's theology. 
Here is the way in which it's laid out in the book of the um, one I've quoted from before, Why the Reformation Still Matters by Reeves and Chester. They lay out in a very helpful and succinct way the Roman Catholic system <clears throat> with regard to grace. And here it is again. That Roman Catholicism says that grace is a thing. It's a thing. It's a force. It's a fuel like Red Bull. There's, you want a can of grace? There it is, as it were. For example, Hail Mary full of grace. Oh, Hail Mary full of grace. The idea is if Mary is wired, as they say, with some kind of spiritual caffeine, oh, she's, got, she's got it. If I can just get that connection. What do the Reformers teach with regard to grace? The contrast is stark. That grace is the personal kindness of God by which he does not merely enables us, but actually rescues us. He doesn't ask it of us and then cooperate with us, but rather he gives it to us. Grace is that which God rescues and gives us himself. And so therefore, it's a do-done thing. Grace gives it. And it where, who, were, who was here when Bill Jackson was here with his, ah, uh, some of you. I found his book that he had, a little book. It's called Do and Done. And he's got a little chapter in there where he gives all, it's an anthology of illustrations, one chapter. There's all these very down-to-earth, homey illustrations. And one is, it's about the appendectomy. You go in on my, oh, you got it. You had an appendectomy. So you go in and you get your surgery. You get your surgery on Monday or whatever day and the operation is done. And then Tuesday morning, you're there in bed trying to get back around and figure out what's going on. And, and the doctor says, I am here to perform the appendectomy, but we've got to get ready. You rise up and you say, wait a minute. It's done. <laughs> it's done. I don't need it. Yes, that's kind of a simple uh, illustration. It is, but it illustrates that it's, it's due or done. It's been done. And that's the point here. So what was happening, and let's, uh, let's go back a little. I skipped over a couple of things. There's some quotes here that I want to, under the muddy waters of Rome's theology. Here it is. Grace was regarded as more or less a substance infused into the individual. Not the disposition of God toward the individual. Here it is again. Theological distinction between congruent merit and condign merit. I looked up those words. I know what congruent is, but I just looked it up. It means harmonious, agreeing. Condign. Condign means deserved. So here's the way the Catholic system muddied the waters with regard to grace. In the first, congruent merit is we cooperate with God. And then we are fitted for God's further gift of grace, that which we deserve. You see, you see how it plays? You get ready for it. Come on, come on. And God gives it. And then you get, God then comes up, hey, let's work. And that's kind of a syncretistic thing. Synergistic. That's the word I mean here. Syn synergistic. And so, Luther was turning. Let's go to Luther's discovery here. Come back to this. Grace says, and I'm quoting Luther here. 
Grace says, believe in this and everything is already done. <laughs> Luther had it clear. And he, and Luther's speaking again. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. That's Thesis 25, the Heidelberg Disputation Debate from Luther's works. So there it is. That's Luther's discovery. Now, we're not through with Luther here on this point. And I want, to, uh, I want to work along about four or five lines. I've got some expanded note uh, points here. I'm going to, I really want to make it clear as I possibly can what grace is then and how Luther discovered it and the preciousness of it. All right? One, I say that grace, therefore, has nothing to do with wages. Clear on that one? Two. Grace has nothing to do with debt. I can't make God owe me anything. Grace has nothing to do with receiving a reward. Justification is received freely. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by His grace. That means without cause. At this point, I came across something in my reading and a book that uh, deals with the five solas is uh, one of the newer ones. This was on the Christianity Today's top, one of its top two, three books of 2016. It's called Biblical Authority After Babel by Kevin J. Van Hooser. And Van Hooser is the research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he... I, I really like the way in which he describes this, what he calls, he's, he's got a section, this is the chapter on grace alone, and he's got a, 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 a section where he describes the, let me get the right page here, he has, a, it, it, the section is entitled, Two Theological Aha Moments, and the first aha is the Eureka of Luther, like, See it. And then he has another uh, a paragraph over here called Eucharisto. And that's Calvin. Calvin's experience was the same. It was different, but uh, I won't have time to go into that one. But here, here he describes this matter with when, when Luther saw that it was grace, grace, grace. Grace, he says, Luther's aha moment came thanks to an exegetical. There's your word, Justin. It came thanks to an exegetical about face in his understanding of Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God, Romans 1.17. In the context of late medieval Catholicism, Luther was first understood it to mean the demand to make oneself acceptable to God. That's why he just beat himself to death. Got to get it, got to get it. Oh, 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 I want it, God, I want it. And he first understood it to be this demand to make himself acceptable to God by improving on the infused grace obtained by virtue of one's baptism in the sacraments. What tormented him was the dread that he had not done enough to make himself sufficiently righteous. How do you ever get there? That is, rightly related to the God who excuses just, executes justice. It was a terrible burden. After he wrestled with the biblical text for days, Romans 1.17, the light finally dawned. Eureka! 
he suddenly realized that God's righteousness was not a demand, but a donation, a divine gift. Uh, good. All right. wanted you to hear that. And uh, that's Luther's aha moment. Now, I did find something in reading this that I thought was in passing. Uh, I like the quote. We're going to go to this next point here in just a second. The, the Red Bull theology is replaced by the romance of redemption. I love that. There's a good section in here. I'm going to read this to you. But I like this. This is from Van Hooser. Grace is, a, grace is especially troublesome for control freaks. Sinners curved in on themselves, bent on securing their own existence and status. All right, I thought it, uh, it spoke well to this point. Now, let's, let's get to this uh, matter with regard to Luther. I'm pushing it a little further. And I'm going over to now to this... Uh, I hope I'm not bothering, boring you with these uh, recitations or these using these books, but they just they jump out. They're stated so well. I want you to hear Luther again. And here is here's Luther. So he's he's counseling a friend, and he's working through these things. Here's what he said: They try to do good of themselves in order that they might stand before God clothed in their own virtues and merits. But this is impossible. Among us, you were one who held to this opinion, or rather, error. So was I. And I am still fighting against the error without having conquered it as yet. As he's describing his struggle. Therefore, my dear brother, learn Christ in him crucified. Learn to pray to him, and despairing of yourself, say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine, and hast given me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not, and hast given to me what I was not. You know, I would have liked to hear, I would like to hear all this in German. You know, German is such an in-your-face language. I just like to hear what that sounds like. All right, now, here's where I want to go to this This. We're un- what we're still doing is Luther's discovery. And this is, uh, this really arrested me, caught me, stopped me in my tracks. Listen to this. Now, what Luther is doing is that we go from this Red Bull experience, okay? But we got another metaphor, and Luther's got a good one. I, Luther was not hesitant to just speak his mind and come out of there. He's earthy. This is borderline earthy, but it speaks. Listen. In Reformation thought, grace was no longer seen as being like a can of spiritual Red Bull. Uh -uh. It was more like a marriage. Hold on. I'm going to read a little bit on this. This is too good. In fact, when Luther first sought to explain his Reformation discovery in detail to the world, it was the story of a wedding that framed what he said. Drawing on the romance of the lover and his beloved in the Song of Solomon, especially 2.16, my beloved is mine and I am his, he told the gospel as the story of the rich and divine bridegroom Christ. Now, uh, footnote there was for centuries this 
interpretation of of the Song of Solomon as a picture of Christ in relation to his bride. That doesn't float. That's not the meaning of the book. Okay, will you just allow me an indulgence here? Or Luther, Luther uses it, but it speaks. Just take it as an illustration. Okay, here it is. So he told the gospel as the story of the rich and divine bridegroom Christ, who marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. At the wedding, a wonderful exchange takes place, whereby the king takes all the shame and debt of his bride, and the harlot receives all the wealth and royal status of her bridegroom. For Jesus and the soul that is united to him by faith, it works like this. And then there's a, I'm going to skip over that paragraph. In the story, in the story, the prostitute finds that she has been made a queen. That does not mean she always behaves as befits royalty, but however she behaves, her status is royal. She is now the queen. So it is with the belief. So it is with the believer. She remains a sinner and continues to stumble and wander. But she has the righteous status of her perfect and royal bridegroom. She is, and until death will remain, at the same time both utterly righteous in her status before God and a sinner in her behavior. That means that it is simply wrong-headed for the believer to look to her behavior as an accurate yardstick of her righteousness before God. Her behavior and her status are distinct. The prostitute will grow more queenly as she lives with the king and feels the security of his love. But she will never become more the queen. Just so the believer will grow more Christ-like over time, but never more righteous. Thus, because of Christ and not because of her performances, the sinner can know a despair-crushing confidence. I just like that turn on it, that picture. Yes, that puts it right out there. And uh, Luther's discovery. We conclude now. Let's go to number four in this, uh, this line of thought, number four. Grace alone brings a sinner into union with Jesus Christ. Okay, you, you see what I just read about the, the prostitute becomes the queen, and as she lives with the queen, things change for her. She's always the queen, ups and downs, but she changes over time, becomes more queenly. So the question here is, what difference does living under grace make? This, to be honest, uh, could be, and I've, I, I went crazy here, and I ended up with... I ended up with so many notes, and I'm looking at my watch, I can't do all that. Because it does open up some issues that are rife today with regard to grace. I'll explain. What is it like living under grace alone? To be confident. You know, Erasmus, you remember him, the humanist who produced the Greek New Testament, but yet he was kind of a burr in the saddle of Luther on some issues this is, what, this is what Erasmus said about the Lutherans. It didn't make Luther happy. He says, Lutherans seek only two things, wives and wealth. To them, the gospel means the right to live as they please, an excuse for a decadent 
to live a decadent life. Ruth Luther would have none of that. Oh, by the way, you know who somebody else was charged with this? Hmm? Paul. Romans 6 and 1. He was accused of it. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Hey, you, um, hey, you like to sin? God likes to forgive. What an arrangement. <laughs> no. So here we are with this yellow light of Romans 6, 1. So this comes up. It comes up in the book. I didn't really go looking for this. It comes up in the book. And it's the whole issue of cheap grace. Have you heard that? Cheap grace? It's become kind of part of our bigger discussion in various ways. We heard it just a week ago in a meeting some of us were in. And I thought it may have very well been speaking to a situation. But let me just... I, let, let me give it just a very brief, brief uh, treatment because it's important to this. I want to say what the connection is between grace and living. That, um, what is it? What is this thing called cheap grace? By the way, it comes from <laughs> um, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, I mean, the con- I'm not saying people weren't, the, the concept goes back. I mean, Erasmus was saying it. But this is, if you read this, this is quite the vile. I read it. And I underlined every place where that term, seven times in this, I uh, went back and just read the, all those passages in here where he uses the word cheap grace. And when he wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he spoke of it. And what he was referring to was the condition of the German church before Adolf Hitler in that period in the 1930s when the church just went AWOL. It, to a large degree, the Lutheran church had become apostate through the impact of liberalism and rash German rationalism, which had just gutted the, the supernatural elements of Scripture and Christianity. But there were those who were genuine believers in the Lutheran church who also became complicit in that process. And, you know, Bonhoeffer, he, to his credit, he saw what was happening and he spoke of that whole thing as cheap grace. Well, it's been taken over by some in American Christianity as describing this, uh, the unwashed masses of Christians or professing Christians who are not living up to speed and in our churches and are not following hard after Christ. So the question then is, remains, uh, what exactly is this cheap grace? Now here is where I went crazy and I've got, I can't do it all. I, I'm going to have to synthesize and just say it this way. That when we come to Christ, we turn to him. That's repentance. We're turning to him. We're turning from our unbelief. Yes, our idols. We're pivoting, doing a 180. And in the turning, we come and we receive the gift of eternal life. And in so doing, then, we are regenerated. Now, we're enabled, we're enabled to believe. We don't generate faith. It's not this a synergistic thing where, oh, it's my faith, it's God's grace. No. It's God enabling us. I'm just going to close in the grand finale here, going over Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's God working and making it possible for us to believe. Now, some of our covenant brothers and sisters in Christ um, and some, Cal- uh, some Calvinists take it to say, well, we get the gift of faith. And so gift of faith means that we're regenerated, and you can't believe until you're regenerated. You've got to be a new creature. So you're, a new, you're, you're regenerated, and then you believe. And I think that doesn't help us at all. <laughs> it confuses and takes away 
the actual powerful biblical logic of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it's not having been saved, then you will believe. But setting that aside for now, let's go to the matter of what then, what then could this be? When grace, when we're saved by grace, then in regeneration we get on a trajectory whereby the movement of our heart and our desires, we're moving toward God. And we desire to please Him, to seek Him, and to know Him. But hopefully we're not using cheap grace to describe some condition that we have to add to faith. Like, hey, oh, you want to believe? There are conditions. It's going to cost you something. It costs something after you've believed and you live for Christ and you're His disciple. Now to me that's very clear. But I have friends who kind of want to get conditions. You've got to surrender. You've got to... You can surrender, but I didn't get anything to do with you're saved or not. That will come when you're a new creature in Christ and say, I'll spend the rest of my life doing that. <laughs> As the Lord keeps opening up, oh, this issue, oh, how about that attitude towards your parents? Huh? You thought you were okay. Find that out ten years later. So there's the process. So here is the, here's the issue. Let's get it back on the main road and finish with Ephesians 2 uh, through 10. That God in his in His grace, comes to us. We come as unworthy and receive. And this is passive. It's passive. That's what faith is. It receives the gift of eternal life. And I become a new creature in Christ. And then I move to live in obedience to Him. That's where the cost comes in. The cost doesn't come in that you've got to make a down payment. Let's see if you really mean business. Down payment. Down, no, no down payment. It's I receive it. And then we go from there. I want to conclude with this. Um, I think I'm putting the, I put grand finale on this, not because it's me that's grand finale, because it's Ephesians 2, 5 through 10. Hear it, hear it. This is it. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Wow. What's going to be so wonderful about heaven? If it's going to be the place where we're just breaking out all over the place all the time, who knows how and just on and we're here because of what? Christ did for us, not what we did for him, not what we did. All through the ages, the one, I don't know how God's got that all arranged. I mean, I think of a church service and it's, you know, we're in, we're out, we can do it for a while, but we've got to have a break, we've got to eat. We've got those, we're bounded by all these human uh, processes. But God will so do a work of transformation that we are going to be in eternal joy and praise going to God for his grace to us. But then what now does he do? Look, he drafts on that. Now here's where the for. You ever wonder about that little word for? For by grace you say, why does he use the word for there? Because he's going to show that this grace that will be praised in the ages to come for now. And what is the now? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. We don't have anything to boast about. Not a thing. You meet me in heaven, I meet you in heaven. Why well, here? Hey. Boy, I really had to do some heavy lifting, but thank God, you know, he we met God. It was just a good cooperative effort. With God, you can't, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Yes, 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 and here I am. Theology is bad on this, but if that were so, you'd be thrown out. <laughs> well, you won't be, but you'd be there delighting in God's grace. You've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, look, look, here's the doing. For we are his workmanship. This salvation is revealed in the new creation that we are, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're saved for the purpose of good works which God prepared beforehand in eternity past that we should walk in him. And so this is the message of grace. I like, <laughs> I found another little quote by Van Hooser. It was cute. I thought I'd put it down. I won't forget it. There's no expiration date for the good news of grace alone. <laughs> Never is there. I'm going to release this now and say, Lord, all of us, let's do it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. For your grace to every one of us that's come to us in this room. Thank you, Lord. We didn't deserve it. And you saved us. And I'm going to stop right in the middle of my prayer with our heads bowed and eyes closed. No one, no one looking around. Just create a little closet. Do you know that if, if, God forbid, but it could you went out here tonight and you were T-boned down at the intersection of Corinth Road in 54 or 85 and you were killed instantly, would you go into the presence of Jesus Christ? Would you? Would you? You can know that. Just say, dear God, dear God, I am a sinner. I can't help myself. I need you. I've broken your law. I'm a rebel. Oh God, I need Jesus Christ who paid the price, judged, punished in my place. Thank you, Lord. And I want to receive your forgiveness and eternal life right now. Save me. Thank you, oh God. Thank you for your grace. It's sweet, it's precious. And God uses as your instruments to tell others of this grace this week. In Christ's name, amen.